Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figger. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Elizabeth F. Cohen. Elizabeth is associate professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. She's a political theorist, who works on normative questions about citizenship, sovereignty, rights, and political inclusion, among other things. Elizabeth's latest book is newly out with Cambridge University Press, and it's titled The Political Value of Time. Now, we're all familiar with some of the ways in which time figures into our political environment. Things such as term limits and waiting periods, deadlines, filibusters, and criminal sentences quickly come to mind. But in addition to these, there are also protocols, accords, mandates, contracts, and these frequently are temporally bounded in various ways. In fact, when you begin to think about it, it's a full range of political phenomena that are structured by time. And yet, oddly, time seems to have eluded political theorists and philosophers. Now, in her book, Elizabeth undertakes an examination of the role that temporality plays, particularly within liberal democratic polities. She develops a fascinating argument according to which time is both a political value and an instrument for distorting value. Now, there's a lot to talk about, and a lot of interesting issues emerge very quickly, but let's begin as we normally do with our guest. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, We usually start off with the author, so why don't we do that today? Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm, as you said, political theorist at Syracuse University. I'm interested in uh, topics related to rights and citizenship. My first book, Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics, uh, also came out with Cambridge in 2010. And the kind of abiding theme of my work is uh, um, the kind of interstices, what, what's get, what gets lost uh, in between things. Um, I'm, I am interested in these issues for normative reasons, and I'm also interested in them uh, because I have a background of a family that's, that is deeply committed to social justice. I'm interested in citizenship in part because my uh, family was left stateless after World War II, and so we never took our citizenship for granted. I'm also the daughter of a social theorist, and so I learned to think about these things abstractly at a young age. Oh, fabulous. Um, so um, why don't we get to the book? Um, now, I, I guess a, a natural place to start. So the, the, the book is about time as a substantive feature of the political order. Um, and that time is such a feature, um, I think is, 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 is kind of obvious in a way. <laughs> once you, once you hear it, like, oh yeah, of course. And, you know, we don't have to think too hard, uh, to start thinking about all of the temporal dimensions of politics. Um, and you're concerned, I think, in the book, uh, with the fact that despite it's fairly sort of ubiquitous, um, substantive role in the political order, um, it's largely been overlooked by political theory. So I guess sort of a, a, a two-part question, you know, do you have an account of why it might have been, why it's been overlooked? And secondly, um, maybe just, uh, you know, a little bit more background on how you um, came to realize that it had been overlooked and decided to, uh, to write uh, 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 on this topic. Sure. Um, great questions. I, um So I think it's Anthony Giddens uh, in describing what good social science should do said that good social science scientists take things that everybody already knows or are really obvious and point them out to us um, and and describe them in ways that make them conceptually useful. And so, you know, 
in thinking about time, it struck me that these most of the things I say in this the first two thirds of this book are things that lots and lots of people who aren't even academics intuitively know. So we intuitively know that deadlines are really important and structure our lives in significant ways and that there are deadlines given to us by the government. You know, if nothing else, we know April 15th, right? (laughs) Um, Everybody's experiencing that pretty much. But others, you know, turning 18, turning 21, um, waiting for things is something that we experience universally and we know it's important. It has an effect on us. And and yet uh, we haven't necessarily thought about taking a long view of the ways in which states and in particular liberal democratic states think about what these deadlines and these waiting periods mean and why they impose them and how they impose them. And so uh, I don't particularly know why nobody else has written this exact book, I'm happy that they didn't because it was fun to write, but uh, there is some good work on time and politics that kind of uh, I, I was able to embed this in or, or um, be in conversation with. There's some good work on uh, in democratic theory. There's some good work on leisure and the importance of, of both leisure and just free time to being a good democratic citizen. There's some good work on the pace of politics that spans philosophy, sociology, and political theory and, and how modernity has sped up, um, our, our timeframes and in some cases our time horizons. There's good work in international relations on, um, on time horizons as well, negotiation. And, and so, and then lots and lots of work on capitalism and time, of course. So, so there is some thinking about time, but I, I did spy a, uh, a kind of opening or an, an un, 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 uh, explored terrain when I started thinking about, um, deadlines and waiting periods in democracy. And the, the kind of moment when I realized that I had a project that actually came about as I was finishing the last bits, I think we might have even been in page proofs, the last bits of my last book, the semi-citizenship book. And for some reason, I was reading a case uh, that is a British common law case. It's really, really familiar to people who work on citizenship and would not be probably uh, on the radar of anyone else. But it's called Calvin's case. Mm-hmm. It's a common law case. And... Um, Calvin's case is considered kind of the foundation of Anglo-American citizenship law for a bunch of reasons. It gets referred to a lot in, when we were establishing citizenship in the United States. And I just noticed that in Calvin's case, a distinction was made based on a date. So Calvin's case, Calvin's case takes up the question of whether somebody who was um, born before the union of the the English and the Scottish thrones, whether a person born before that union was actually a subject of the king. And and it was questionable because, of course, you were supposed to be a natural-born subject, Mm -hmm. but you can't be natural-born to something that doesn't exist yet. Right. And so the case actually sets up a, a barrier, a line in time before which you're not you could be naturalized, but you weren't a natural born subject. Uh, and and I looked at that and I thought, oh, you know, that date is a really important boundary. It's probably as important as any other type of political boundary we might have. But I can't find anything that's been written about that. And so I started thinking about that and er- everything else kind of came out of reading that case. Well, that's interesting. Um, so and, you know, I, I will confess I, I hadn't heard. Uh, about the case prior to reading uh, the book. No reason um, you would have. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the way that you present it, I'm like, wow, you know, that is a really interesting, and it, it's, I'm sure it's, you know, although it's a famous case, um, you know, it's, it's once you start thinking like, well, wait a minute, you know, there are these sort of, sort of temporal, these lines drawn in the, in the, in the, mm-hmm. the temporal field where you say, well, after this date, X, Y, and Z, before this date, none of those things. You say, well, you know, that is a really interesting, um, 
uh, feature of uh, all kinds of things that happen politically. Um, so let's uh, you very quickly in the book introduce um, and then d- deploy the sort of three-way distinction or the, the, the distinction between three kinds of temporal borders or boundaries. Um, these one-off fixed deadlines, as you call them, or, and then there are countdowns, and then there are what we what you call recurring deadlines. Um, maybe one place to begin to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of the account is to um, actually just sort of explain this this sort of three-part menu. Sure. So as I said, I, I started off kind of really interested in this idea that we could draw kind of line in the sand, a, a boundary using a deadline that was probably as significant for anybody living with it as a territorial boundary. And we do that with um, with dates all the time, and there's all kinds of, of examples of this. So, um, you know, uh, we're dealing with a pretty significant immigration politics crisis. I don't know if we have an actual immigration crisis, but we have an immigration politics crisis going on in the United States and all kinds of concerns about undocumented immigration um, and talk about building a wall at the southern border. Right. I think there's even been talk about building a wall elsewhere, too. But um, <laughs> Yeah, the northern border. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who lives close to the northern border, I'm, I'm not a fan, but um, I think most people who live close to the southern border are not fans either. Um, but anyway, the you know, one of the facts that gets – the throne in the face of this argument that we should spend a lot of money on a, on a border wall is that um, about half, just under half of all the people in the United States who are undocumented are, have overstayed a visa. So they crossed the border perfectly legally and then went on to become undocumented because the border passed over them and the border that passed over them was a temporal boundary. Mm-hmm. So they went from being in in political sense, being legal and having certain types of claims against the state, even if they're not the same claims as a citizen might have, to being undocumented or, in some people's parlance, illegal. And that happens because of a calendar um, and time passing rather than their own movement. There are other types of um, boundaries. I think one of the most significant are founding moments, so every state comes into existence, and if you look at constitutions and other types of founding documents, uh, they almost inevitably refer to the moment that the state came into existence to identify when in time this thing actually um, started to be a, a sovereign state. Um, and and it's important to know that because, of course, as was the case in Calvin's case, it's the case very often in contemporary uh, contexts as well, people who were a part of a political entity that existed before the founding of the state may not necessarily be included, even if they are the same people in the same territory with the same relationships to everyone around them. So um, we see these in constitutions, um, these we call, uh, often call them um, zero option rules. And you see them you know, saying something like anybody here after this date is a citizen of this sovereign state. And then you'll see more complicated ones, too. So um, German basic law is an example, uh, the essentially the constitution of Germany that came into existence after after um, World War Two refers to people who had to leave during particular times um, in the previous regime, essentially in the previous state, and and says kind of anyone here after this date, but also people who were here before this date had to leave or may have been here after this date. In other words, kind of re-including people that they had been told, the country had been told it illegitimately uh, forced out of the country. You'll see the reverse as well in some of the post-Soviet republics. Uh, they wanted to de-russify, and one of the ways to de-russify is to point to certain dates before um, the Soviet Union resettled Russians in some of uh, in some of the subunits of the Soviet Union. Um, that the, they will refer to. Okay, if you if your grandparents were here in these dates, you're good. But if you came during these dates and these dates. <laughs> 
we probably we think you're a settler and we're not necessarily going to honor your your citizenship. So those kind of single moments um, are they're both really blunt instruments. You know, it's you're kind of in or you're out. But there are these clever ways of using them to carve people in or out of a citizenry and a territory. Um, we have other internal temporal boundaries, things like curfews, I think are really important. Um, depending on your age, your race, and your location, curfews can be quite significant temporal boundaries restricting free movement. Uh, people who have been convicted of crimes also deal with um, some temporal boundaries about how long they're able to travel and how far. Mm-hmm. So those, those single moments um, occur in lots and lots of ways that we often take for granted. Then we have these other types of um, uh, temporal boundaries that I call countdowns. And a really good example of a countdown boundary is a statute of limitation. Mm-hmm. So a statute of limitation will take a point in time and say, you know, okay, crime committed, uh, we believe was committed or was committed, we know was committed at this particular point. And we're going to say that it can, we can, the state can go after somebody for that crime for this amount of time. And so the clock is ticking on whether somebody can be prosecuted. And many, most crimes, it eventually runs out and then you're done. And the nice thing about a statute of limitation is that, you know, it gives us some leeway, right? There's a little bit of, of leeway for moving within that, those two periods of time. Uh, so you're not kind of run by the single date in the way that you are with a, a single moment um, temporal boundary. There's there's some flex in there, mm-hmm. but it ends. Right. So it's only it's really just two deadlines, and, and um, that's that's not necessarily uh, enough to. To, to say, like, this is really democratic procedure. So the third type of boundary is a recurring temporal boundary. And recurring temporal boundaries are those that we expect to go on in perpetuity with the same rhythm um, in a predictable fashion. And as you yourself said, a really good example is um, is an election cycle, right? So we expect elections to be held for certain offices every thus and such amount of years, you know, presidency in the United States will, uh, a president will be elected every four years. And these are really different. So, you know, you, a state is not a particularly democratic on its own entity. And so we expect sovereignty, I think, to, to kind of rule with more iron fist and be a single moment and, and, and very decisive in that way. Um, recurring deadlines, are a democratic innovation because they allow us a period of time in which we can make decisions and um, then a moment in which we can remake them. And and it's not until we get the idea of these recurring um, deadlines, that boundaries, that we can do democracy, I think. I don't think we can do democracy in an open-ended way. And so that's really, I think, um, opens up a lot of political opportunities for us. Right. Excellent. So um, you claim that um, and, and, and claim in the book and have just claimed that um, these temporal boundaries figure into um, the founding and establishment of sovereign states in a way that um, is, is, is pretty tightly analogous to or, or similar to, let's just say, I don't know about analogous, um, to the role that sort of territory, sort of more sort of geographic or physical space um, does that um, sovereign states have as part, part of their founding some uh, delineation of um, where the state is uh, in physical space? Um, can you tell us a little bit about this, the, the, the way in which these uh, the, the, the temporal boundaries figure into um, the founding or creation of, of, of sovereign entities? Sure. So, as I said, you know, I think you, you'll you see in almost any constitution, you'll see a reference to when the constitution goes into effect as as well as, in fact, I, I based on the reading that I've done about territorial boundaries, I think we're probably much more certain of when states, uh, decide, you know, assert themselves and say that they are states, then we are about where the (laughs) geographic boundaries are. And I just happened to be reading something today about um, 
Gulf state, uh, states trying to dig canals around themselves to create a water boundary where none existed. And I've also been reading some really interesting things about climate change and, and boundaries, you know, territorial boundaries. Not only do we often ourselves not know where they are. So if I, you know, unless, unless there's a marker, I'm going to go to the southern border of the United States and probably at many points not know, um, which side of it I'm on. Certainly that would be the case, um, in lots of different types of terrain around the world. Uh, but I, I, I'm much more, it's much, a much more precise thing to say that, like, I was, um, born at this moment. And at this moment, my parents were in the United States or, um, thus and such person was born after the imposition of the French Republican calendar, which starts with zero and mm-hmm. clearly creates a citizenry of the French Republic um, that was different than what had existed before that. Um, you see these, you know, Kuwait has, has like a really interesting nationality law that basically means you have to have been, you have to have had family there forever. Um, makes it very difficult for uh, what has become a sizable guest worker population or their children to in any way claim that they might be citizens. Um, so it enables their economy and their polity to kind of go on as if one weren't changing when in fact their economy is very different now that they have so many guest workers. Um, so I, I view these as very, very stark symbols of um, telling us kind of many things, but specific to what I want to do, who's in and who's out. Right. So um, I take it that there's a similar phenomena or set of phenomena in play, um, uh, the ways in which temporal boundaries work sort of internal to states. Now, we were just talking about, as you just put it, you know, who's in and who's out as um, uh, a matter to be determined uh, largely by uh, some uh, temporal discrimination. Um, but uh, just to get now into um, – Things like curfews and waiting periods, um, uh, things having to do with working visas and, and permission to stay and the rest. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the how these boundaries and borders work um, sort of inside? Whereas once we've got uh, some sense of who's in and who's out, uh, time still plays an important role, right? Yes. And, um, you know, I, I think one thing to think about today in particular is this question. So we're um really in a crisis with unaccompanied minors in the United States um and by which i mean not only people young kids who crossed the border alone but also people who are legally being stripped of their accompanied status by the government taken away from their parents and incarcerated separately uh the reason that this was happening the, the the taking of the children is because there's a rule in place that says that you can't uh, the kids the children cannot be held for more than 20 days. Goes back to a settlement in a, a case known as Flores, and um, so in order to indefinitely detain, right, the kid the kids have to be separated from the parents, or everybody is supposed to be allowed to um, go, go to the check-in policy that we'd had before this. So that 20-day boundary is something that if you're the, the Trump administration and you're really trying to do zero tolerance, you've got to get around that 20-day um, boundary. Which and, I understand they're trying to get around. I'm sad to, <laughs> the, I'm sad to say. <laughs> yes. So they seem to have failed at their first strategy, which is to get around it just by separating the kids from the parents. Now they're asking, the Department of Justice is asking basically for um, for courts to let them uh, ignore the rule. And I, you know, I will make a kind of qualified um, guess that this is very similar to an emergency power. I read the, the explanation that's very similar to an emergency powers type of um, request. In other words, they're saying, like, we have a crisis. We don't have a crisis, but they're claiming we have a crisis. And because it is an emergency, we'd like the um, court to tell us that we can lift this restriction and hold these people indefinitely. 
right? But, but there was an attempt to put up a boundary there. We've got other types of internal boundaries as well. Um, another interesting one that, that, um, is related, uh, to what's going on is quarantine. So immigrants, um, People coming into the country, we've seen this when people were even U.S. citizens traveled to places where there were uh, concerns about um, pandemic that they um, that they would be quarantined to not spread bird flu or you know um, Zika, um, uh, you know things that can be can be passed. And so, well, uh, quarantine, you know has Latin origins and it was in a period of time in which you would be kept by the government. As I said, also, you know, we, to, to people who have been incarcerated experience a ton of these internal boundaries where they, they not only can't go, um, past a certain point without telling their parole officer or at all, but they have to check in every so often or they can go away for only short periods of time. So they're really like, all over the place once you start to see them. Right. And so if, if, if I may ask, sort of waiting periods are um, sort of interesting sites, uh, at least as you um, explain them in the book. And we can mm-hmm. talk about ways in which um, certain maneuvers on the pro-life side of our abortion politics have been very interested in waiting periods and um, the pushback uh, uh, uh to those maneuvers, it does sort of recognize, you know, the way in which these, you know, fiddling with or, or manipulating these temporal borders does impact in some, you know, very significant way uh, individuals' rights. Um, you know, but, but another oddly, well, intriguingly, I guess, interesting place where sort of waiting waiting periods shows up is also um, in certain arguments about gun control. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, where, you know, again, the, you know, if the state can make me wait for this, um, that's that, that's a, a, a roundabout way uh, of uh, denying me the right uh, that is afforded in the Second Amendment, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me take a step back for a minute sure. and and say that. Uh, so I started this project. I knew I had a project when I read Calvin's case, but I was really very interested in kind of, you know, democracies. And <laughs> Calvin's case doesn't refer to a democracy. Those are sovereign subjects of a king. And I so I traced kind of some of the lineage or I traced forward in into um, the United States, looking at kind of what kind of influence this case had, why it's considered the origin of our citizenship laws. And, and, um, I did two things. I, I, the first thing I did was I started looking at kind of questions of citizenship right after the founding. Some of the cases don't kind of come up exactly at, at that moment. They take a while to, to work their way through, but they're really questions that arise when you founded this new Republic. And um, one of the questions was like, well, what do we do about the loyalists? Right. So these people are here and they fought against us. They were on the other side, but they're here. They're not like British soldiers that left and went home after they lost. And they have always been here. So we can't even say that like they're invaders or anything. What do we do? Are they citizens? And that's a really complicated question. So you know, for the Romans, it might have been simple. You give citizenship, uh, but it is a really limited citizenship and very differentiated. And we were uh, in some ways committed to not making those differentiations. And so a couple cases come through and um, courts are being asked, like, what do we do about these people? Are they citizens? And they come up with this remarkably consistent answer case after case in which what they do is they look to, um, okay, was the person here when state and then our national constitution was um, proposed? And did they remain in that place, whichever state is in question and in the country, during the period in which we deliber- deliberated and decided to ratify? And the language is very explicit that these are special times of reasoning that particular period marked out by two dates 
and um, that anybody who was there had to have known that they were consenting to this because the whole country was involved in this national discussion about constituting itself. And um, so I saw that that was like a special period of reasoning. And reasoning is one of the words that comes up that that people were obviously being described as giving consent and that that's not that different than what we do, you know, when we elect. Right. We know that there is an election going on. It's going to recur. It's not going to be the only election, but um, that that these we, these periods of time are um, periods in which we can give consent and we have all kinds of, of others. So you brought up abortion. And in fact, um, there have been successful attempts to put waiting periods into place to get people to reason, supposedly, um, to put the brakes on and make a reasoned decision about um, about an abortion and um, and and many other things. We think, you know, if we can create a, a waiting period for something um, that lots of processes, but most importantly, consent. Consent cannot be given in a moment. That's the thing that makes Calvin's case so undemocratic. There's no consent at all about where you're born. It just happens in a moment, and it happens in a moment before we can reason. But once we have a period, a period of time marked out by two dates, then, especially if we're adults, <laughs> we're, we're able to reason politically and then give our consent. And I called that in the case of kind of um, eratifying constitutions. I call it lived consent because we're just living through that period of time, but the living through it is significant. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I guess uh, the, the idea that um, just as you're talking, the sort of uh, the, the, the tie between consenting and time and that time can be a proxy or be a signal or be sufficient to, to, for a government to have, you know, to treat you as if you had consent. I guess this plays like sort of the, the tacit consent view in Locke, for example, looks like it's temporary. You know, we often talk, well, you've held property in the state. That's enough for you know, on Locke's view for you to have consented. But I guess the holding of property is a, at least in part a temporal phenomenon, right? So it yeah. Looks, yeah. So it looks as if it does have a, a, a sort of tacit consent has a, uh, in that Lockean sense, does have a temporal dimension to it that um, – yeah, just another thing that I I guess has been overlooked. <laughs> I think it has to, right? Yeah. I don't think like none of that nothing nothing significant to a democracy can happen in a moment. And um you know, I kind of point out that there are arguments between, you know, the French philosophers Condorcet is really concerned with this idea that democracy needs a rhythm. And we neither want to be too fast nor too slow, right? So for uh, for Condorcet, like certain types of decisions require longer or shorter periods of time to make. Um, and he has this whole theory of the rhythm of democracy that unfortunately, you know, did not get implemented <laughs> uh, in his time. But we, we also, we think about this, you know, in our own context, um, sometimes explicitly, sometimes we're implicitly, but we know that, you know, the idea of a, any given leader, um, suspending an election, for example, making us wait an extra cycle, that that's undemocratic. Um, and we know that if we're not given enough time to do something like register to vote or, you know, something that these are undemocratic things because each process needs its due time. And um, that word process is really significant. I hang a lot in the book on the idea of process that that democracy requires us to uh, experience and engage in various different types of processes and and um, that time has two kind of two different roles in that right so we know that we just there's a very concrete need for some time in order for a process to happen so um, a process that I think is really important to excuse <clears throat> me to, to um, to becoming a citizen, either, you know, whether or not you were born somewhere, to really becoming a citizen is character development and learning. And you can go back into ancient philosophy and see versions of this, but you also, I think, can see arguments in the contemporary context about 
whether somebody is um, of a citizenly character, but it doesn't happen in an instant. It's a process that requires time. So too does um, gaining civic knowledge. So too does maturing. So too does the development of relationships with other citizens. You know, all of these processes require um, time, but it's also the case that they require more than time. And the things that they require that are beyond just like a period of time in which we sit there, those things are really, really abstract. Um, we don't even necessarily agree on what they are. We, we might, you know, disagree wildly about what makes a good citizen. Uh, they're very hard to measure or test, um, despite what some people might like to do. And so in it, the time, which we know is required for them to happen, also becomes a really good way to represent those things that are otherwise so hard to, to make tangible and, and to represent. And, um, and so we might say, for example, let's take the probationary period that somebody who is not a natural-born citizen waits before they naturalize. It's almost universal. Uh, in, in almost every country, under almost any circumstance, somebody has to wait a period of time to naturalize, to become a citizen if they didn't start out a citizen. And, um, like, we don't agree on what's supposed to happen in that time period. We have a general sense, but, you know, the, er, the first Congress in the United States argued bitterly about it. And if we were to sit down and have a national discussion about it now, we'd argue bitterly. But we're actually pretty consistent about the idea that it happens in five years and the five years, you know, can it represents whatever it is we don't agree about. But it it represents if I if I think it's civic knowledge and you think it's like attachment to other citizens or work, we can go on living with each other just fine, even though we disagree, because I'm fine with five years of civic knowledge and you're fine with five years of these other things. So it becomes a proxy for things that a state otherwise really could not cope with, could not cope with measuring and sussing out and deciding about. So the waiting periods end up, you know, fulfilling both this very concrete instrumental um, role and this other kind of representational role. And and that's, you know, has some downsides, but it, it is uh, efficient um, there's, there's all kinds of benefits to that too. Sure. So this is a, a nice segue then because, um, uh, you know, uh, there's part of the book that, um, is devoted largely to sort of describing the temporal mechanisms that, um, are at work, um, in, you know, the founding of states, the relations between states and internal relations between citizens and states and internal relations between citizens and citizens. Um, but then there's also this discussion about time as a kind of value and time as um, uh, politically a, a proxy for um, uh, values of other kinds, as you were just saying, that um, sort of uh, the, 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 the waiting period, the probationary period for naturalization. Um, we can agree on, you know, a particular probationary period, even amidst some pretty um, – severe um, value-based disagreements about what makes for uh, an appropriate citizen. Um, I guess we can agree on a voting age, even if we um, disagree about uh, <laughs> uh, what makes uh, a, a, a citizen a competent voter um, or a proper voter. Um, can you tell us a little bit more sort of about um, both how time is a value and also how it serves as this um, – uh, even in the cases we were just talking about this, it's a value that helps us to address um, conflicts between or disagreements over values that look uh, more unwieldy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I would say that, t- you know, one you know, one of the core conclusions in the book is that time has value. It has, um, I, I try to kind of ease people into this idea who might not be comfortable with it um, by using this concept in in Marx that a, a scholar who's worked a lot on time, Barbara Adam, um, pull, pulls out very neatly, and that is that 
you know, and work itself is this unwieldy, irregular concept. You know, what constitutes work? What constitutes enough work, hard work, you know? Um, but for Marx, we come to measure uh, work in a way that we can then translate into paying somebody. We use time. So uh, wage labor requires, you know, people, to, you know, are working a certain period of time. And um, I just, I just transition by saying we, this is the case for work. It's also the case for politics that we start to measure citizenship or citizenliness or um, being qualified to exercise a right. We start to measure um, that using time as well. Because what constitutes being ready for citizenship, let's say, after somebody's been incarcerated, um, is very, very difficult to say. But if we can just put a, an amount of time on it and say, like, we think that you will be, we don't even know, right? Are we rehabilitating you? Or are we just keeping you out of society? Or are we trying to punish and, and make you suffer? We, don't, we certainly don't agree on that at all. But we do think we know exactly how long we need to do it for. It, before you can become a citizen. And, you know, unfortunately, those lengths of time have have become quite extended. Um, but it, it regularizes that that a process that would otherwise be very difficult in the same way that time um, functions in capitalism to to smooth out the rough edges of work. And um, and, and so um, this gives us a baseline. And then what, what I point out is that one of the nice things about time is that you can kind of fiddle with it. So taking something like a prison sentence, um, we can make an equation first to come up with the sentence, like your um, background, past history of crimes, your age, the type of crime. We can kind of crunch a number there. But then we can also modify the sentence that we come out with with something that's um, pretty qualitative, right, which is good behavior. Mm -hmm. So we can take a prison sentence of, you know, 10 years and say that this is the baseline sentence, but we're going to make an equation in which if you do these things, you're, you know, work in prison and do not get into trouble and um, show other uh, exemplary behaviors, then we'll knock a certain amount of time off for those things. We do that with the naturalization formula as well, right? We believe that the baseline is five years between um, permanent residency and opportunity to naturalize. But we really think there's something special about serving in the military. Uh, and if you serve in the military, we'll knock a few years off your waiting period because that's a very citizenly thing to do. And if you are on active duty, we'll actually get rid of the rest of your waiting period and let you naturalize. Uh, something similar is the case for marrying a U.S. citizen. You can expedite. You still have a waiting period, but it's a shorter waiting period. If you're a permanent resident who is married to a U.S. citizen, because we really, really value marriage and families and the idea of kind of a, a you know, Burke's little platoon. Um, uh, we think that's really important to citizenship. So we can come up with these equations, some of which are quite simple and some of which are complicated, in which we take the quantitative thing that we use to represent um, other qualitative goods, um, and and then we can um, modify it, uh, both with something qualitative like an interview. You know, uh, you do have to go for a kind of a, a character interview if you're trying to naturalize and something quantitative also like your um, score that you get on the citizenship test. Right. And and these these formula are all over the place. Like we use these formula show up in lots and lots of different realms. Right. So maybe that's um, uh, that, that's a good lead into sort of one of the concerns that comes um, in later in the book, which um, has to do with um, – time being understood as a kind of um, value-neutral proxy for, um, uh, for sort of competing value claims. Now, uh, the, the way that you put this in the book um, has to do with um, 
I guess something that many of the listeners to our podcast will be familiar with is sort of, you know, the longstanding debates about sort of liberal democratic states and the, the, the idea of, um, uh, you know, the need to, um, preserve some kind of neutrality, uh, whether that's justificatory neutrality or neutrality in some other sense is a debate, but the liberal state is supposed to in some way, um, legislate, uh, and act politically in a way that doesn't, um, presuppose or explicitly commit uh, the state to um, some particular um, value orientation of the kind that, you know, citizens in a free state might uh, reasonably disagree about. Um, and so it looks as if time is the thing that um, we don't, uh, there aren't reasonable disagreements about, you know, a week is seven days and, you know, a year is 365 days and there's 12 hours in a, you know, in, in this segment of a day. Um, so uh, it looks then as if, uh, and this is part of the analysis, right, that time has this sort of value neutrality, at least um, uh, veneer to it. Uh, but you think that, um, in fact, uh, that's more of an illusion, right? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I kind of um, preface this part of the book by just saying we, the reason we end up according time, this value and this role is that we don't have a lot of good tools in a liberal democratic state for, um, for doing the kind of thing we need to do, which is very efficiently deciding who's qualified for rights and who's not. And, you know, at the micro level, it's something as specific as like one person's abortion or at the macro level of like, when is somebody an adult? Uh, when are all people adults and things like that? And so, you know, we, we have all of these predecessor means of doing this, like your blood lineage will tell you if you're a citizen in some context, right? You have the right blood. You're one of us. You don't. You're not. Um, money, property, very common in um, outside of liberal democracies as ways to determine who can have access to a right. You can buy your way in or if you're property, you're considered citizenly. But if you want to be a liberal democracy, you need something that at least has the guise of being impartial and somewhat neutral so that you are treating people according to the values that liberal democracy um, claims to commit. Um, and so time has seems way better. It's at first seems way better than money or property or blood lineage or any of these other things. Um, because everybody has time and the clock ticks at the same rate for everybody, as you said. Um, so it has this kind of seems to kind of be egalitarian and impartial at the same time. It's almost unavoidable. There will be a pun. Right. Um, but it is also the case that time's a little it's embedded. Right. Like so um, every country has their own ways of thinking about time that are distinctly American or German or Italian. Um, there's great historians of time. David Landis um, is a really well-known one. Um, Vanessa Ogle who talk about the creation of, um, of national time and what that means. And so we can kind of feel like we're doing something that, that only we would do as well. And very few things give us both that, you know, a way to call ourselves neutral and impartial and yet be very us and not anybody else. You know, that's, that's a, that's a trick. And, um, and, and not much else can, can do that. Um, can I, can I just give one example of this? Because, um, sure. uh, so I was last week, I was at an academic conference in Helsinki in Finland of a group that, uh, in a previous year had met in Rome mm. <laughs> And That's, uh, yes. you can see where this is going <laughs> at the beginning or the introductory remarks uh, at the conference. The organizers actually said, um, you'll be delighted by this, actually said, you're in Scandinavia now. <laughs> or you're you're in a, actually, I'm sorry. They said you're in a Nordic country now. So, uh -huh, yes. Right. So um, we're going to stay on schedule. Yeah. And got it. <laughs> and this was message received. Yeah, and this was um and every, you know a hundred or something people in the room. Everybody understood exactly what the we are in a Nordic country now meant. He didn't have to continue with the you're going to stay on schedule. It was offered as a um as a, a, a you know half a half joke, 
but that means half not joking, um, mm-hmm. that it was going to stay on schedule. And that was just the, that was the right way to do things. Um, maybe as such, but certainly it's the thing that will happen <laughs> when you're in Helsinki and yeah. didn't happen, I guess in Rome. I well, I hope that somebody just in solidarity with the Italians stayed late with an espresso before a session was supposed to begin, just to kind of a little, just a little resistance, right? There was it was a it, there was a it was interesting because there was a a, a fairly regular um, reference back throughout the conference, like, well, you know. I see that some of our Italian colleagues are in the the audience, so we're gonna go. We're gonna give it another three minutes. I mean, it was mm. it was interestingly embraced as a constraint, as part of a national character, as a difference between people who are situated in different parts of the world. Uh, it was it, it was interesting. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, like, well, it was really interesting that that was just you know that was part of the conference was that that remark. That's fascinating. I'm sure that we're probably, you know, experiencing these references more than, you know, we think we take some of them for granted. But that's a particularly pointed one. And I'm glad that everybody took it in in good humor. Right. But please continue. (laughs) Well, um, so kind of, you know, I. I, I make a case for why we end up with time serving this role, um, you know, that it has all these different qualities and then I use that as a jumping off point to talk about what I call the political economy of time. And that's the, the, where I really get into these equations and what they mean. And I start talking about, um, different examples of how we take periods of time and then modify, modify waiting periods, um, how we represent, you know, uh, different kind of different um, changes in circumstance that that are um, would be otherwise you know our rules would be too rigid to accommodate and 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 I talk about you know kind of how I think I I use I'm, I'm not a heavy Foucauldian in any sense of that but I use the concept of governmentality to to, to say like okay we kind of needed a political economy of time to go along with the other types of political economy that go into the art of government, um, just for, for practical reasons. Um, but also like we kind of like the security of numbers. They feel very certain and clear, clear to us. Um, uh, we like to quantify these things and, um, you can go back to like Plato, um, and, and, and see that, that, he also had this sense that we were going to have to do some kinds of um, commensuration. And, and that is, you know, using numbers to represent things that are otherwise hard, hard to represent and then using them a lot. <laughs> and, and commensuration is really, really important. I think um, there's a great review article in one of the main sociology journals uh, kind of about the study of numbers and how we're starting to, you know, not just be quantitative social scientists and I hope your philosophy audience will forgive this, but I I think they'll really find it interesting. Um, uh, Social scientists are using lots of numbers, but we haven't studied the use of numbers itself as much as we should. And we're just starting to, and, and one of the books um, by a sociologist named Wendy Espelin has been really important because she, brings out the importance of commensuration. Commensuration is what's going on in Marx with wage labor, um, but we have a lot of forms of political commensuration that we haven't dealt with. And this is one form of political commensuration in which we use these numbers this time um, to determine who qualifies for rights. And what I do is I I say, um, this is very similar to what uh, Cass Sunstein, who I think will be familiar uh, to to your podcast audience, what Cass Sunstein calls incompletely theorized agreements, mm-hmm. in which um, we really can't necessarily agree um, on everything by, in any stretch, um, but we can agree on some overarching, some superficials. So we don't agree on what happens during incarceration. We disagree very, very profoundly about what 
the purpose of incarceration is, but we can agree on how to do it, um, that we need sentences rather than, say, um, to torture people, you know, punish them in units of pain rather than units of time. Right. We're, we can get that far, right, that we're going to incarcerate people rather than, um, than torture them. And these are incompletely theorized agreements because underneath the overarching agreement, there's just such so much disagreement. And um, incompletely theorized agreements have some virtues, right? So they allow us to agree. They reduce the cost of the fact that we do disagree. Um, they're loose enough that they allow moral evolution. So we may, in fact, do some sentencing reform, um, some more sentencing reform than we've done because what we did put into place didn't work very well. Uh, and um, they're, they, you know, save us on time. Um, and they're really well adapted to systems that rely on precedent as well. I, I also think that, you know, we've got some contradictory commitments in liberal democracies. Like we like a demos, but we also think all people are fundamentally equal and you have to bound the demos, which means some people are not going to be treated as equals, even though we think they are equals. And these incompletely theorized agreements help us get around that. Um, without them, I think we just do we descend into chaos and disagreement. Um, there's some things people don't like about commensuration, though. Uh, and, and it's very reductive, right? It's extremely reductive to reduce punishment and a crime to a prison sentence. Uh, people are often dissatisfied with that. Um, reducing maturity to the age of 18, uh, I think we can see many instances in which people find that absurd, that we see people who are over the age of 18 who are incredibly immature. And as the Parkland incidents have illustrated, we see people under the age of 18 who are very much ready for citizenship. Yep. Um, so, so, you know, these are, th these are reductive. Um, and, you know, communitarians, people like, um, like, like Michael Waltz are, you know, really, really don't like commensuration that much. Um, <clears throat> so that's a problem. Um, I, I kind of come down on the side that, that that isn't as big a problem as somebody like Walter might think it is because to get back to a point I made earlier, time has a lot of meaning. And so reducing, um, like if we were to reduce the standard for citizenship to a dollar figure, we could get into what that money means, but it doesn't have the kind of meaning I think that time does to us. We're really, really emotionally um, and socially attached to thinking about time in certain ways. So we can smuggle more meaning in there than some of those critics who think time is very reductive. We can smuggle more meaning in than, than probably those critics are, are acknowledging. Um, that, that time can be very rich. Um, but, I'm sorry, yeah, but, but for that, yeah, for that reason, isn't, um, isn't there a problem, though? I mean, if, the, the more we uh, thicken our understanding of the social meaning of time with, you know, sort of normative significance, um, then it does lose um, uh, its ability to play this role as value neutral arbiter or commensurator of, you know, more seemingly difficult to track uh, um, yeah. value conflicts, right? And it looks as if maybe this is sort of an unmasking, kind of Foucauldian unmasking of something that's been there all along, which is that um, time, um, you know, looks like it's this value neutral thing. But in fact, um, what the state's doing in, in talking about these um, sort of temporal dimensions of, you know, when you're fit for citizenship, when you're you know, repaid to the debt to society that you created when you committed your crime. These are really just ways in which there's no there's no impartiality at all. Uh, the value of time is a is 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 a real thing and is as real as the value of, um, you know, being free from torture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I so I, I come to this conclusion that there are points at which we can see time being uh, political time being manipulated by the state in ways that belie those those beliefs we have that, you know, time, the clock is ticking at the same rate for everyone. And this is really fair. And and I, what I describe is that some people's time it is devalued and that we can see that somebody's time is being devalued 
when it turns out that um, they can't acquire rights at the same rate or pace in the same amount of time that somebody who's very similarly situated would. And so we can think of examples of this. Um, we know that there's vast, vast racial disparities in our incarceration, sentencing and incarceration in the United States, and that um, somebody who is an African-American man is just much more likely to spend um, time in prison, but also spend more time than uh, a similarly situated white person. Um, and, and so I can give other examples of this where somebody's time is being devalued, but I go back to the idea that the time represents important processes, character development, learning, um, the development of important relationships, citizenliness. Mm -hmm. And I say that once we devalue somebody's time and say, like, we, you know, you're not going to qualify for rights at the same rate as everyone else, we're essentially saying that they're not moral equals because time doesn't have the same effect on them as people or as citizens that it does on everyone else. And so if you have a person who's been sentenced to an extraordinarily long and longer than somebody else's uh, similarly situated person's prison sentence, or if we have people coming into this country who in every way live like legal immigrants, they work, they pay taxes, they form families, they send their kids to school in every way, indistinguishable, but we'll never get to that point where they at the five-year waiting period kicks in, that we are saying that there's something about having not had papers that makes them moral unequals. And that's really, if we buy the argument that the time was supposed to represent these important processes, if we buy that, then it's incredibly unfair, unjust to tell people who obviously have undergone those processes that that they haven't undergone them and that they don't qualify for rights. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, um, you know, a, a real, um, you know, one of the, the, the real pleasures of the book um, sort of in, in those final chapters is sort of saying, wow, like, you know, time really isn't this neutral sort of thing that applies to everyone equally. And so, you know, um uh, you know, five months here, five months for the next guy is just five months. You know, um, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, we have to give up on that. Um, but um, you've been very generous with your time, uh, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank you for that. Um, uh, the last question. Um, this is a fabulous book. Uh, what, thank you know, you. And it ends with um, – uh, some some intriguing thoughts about further research. Um, what will you what will you be up to next? Um, thank you. Yes, I. So there's a couple things at the end of the book um, that have to do with kind of um, protest and slowing down politics in some instances, and I, I'm really hoping to um, be able to do some of that. But my most immediate next turn is to. I'm really interested in. Um, Looking at the specific frame of line standing and line cutting as it pertains to social justice and distributive justice. And so we were hearing lots and lots of talk about immigrants cutting the line. Um, Arlie Russell Hochschild wrote a whole book in which she talked about these disaffected people who would become Trump voters uh, as viewing various groups, women, racial minorities, federal workers as kind of cutting a line that they'd been waiting in to achieve the American dream. And I'm really interested in these metaphors about line standing, which is, of course, a temporal phenomenon. And um, what we think about the idea of first come, first served as a distributive principle, what it does to us when we start to think of ourselves as in line in a kind of very hierarchical relationship that allows for social mobility at a particular pace, um, but always places some people ahead of others. And then what we think of, um, what it does to us when we think people are cutting in line. So first of all, the line is a metaphor. It's not actually, there is no line. Mm -hmm. There's not even an immigration. There are some immigration lines, but there's not a line. Um, and there's not one to cut into, certainly. But uh, it does something to us when we think people are cutting in line. And everybody knows this because everybody has been in line. And uh, although there are some societies that don't respect cues, um, many, many, many do. And for those that do, there's just a particular 
incredibly powerful white hot rage <laughs> that we experience <laughs> when we think somebody has cut in line, even when sometimes we understand why they did it. And so I'm interested in um, kind of the political psychology of that. And I'm going to work with a political psychologist on that. And then also the normative dimensions of like why we so easily fall into this trap of liking first come first serve as a distributive principle when if you think about it, it's really not a very good distributive principle. <laughs> you mean because um, there's often um, uh, the, the, the the causal or explanatory chain about who's first often involves itself uh, significant forms of injustice? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was just, just at a conference in which we were talking about populism. And, you know, it's great frame for populists because they can try and make themselves seem like they're native and that there's justification for their nativism just by invoking the queue and putting themselves at, at the head of the queue. Um, but also, I actually think that if you take people out of the mindset of thinking about the queue and they kind of are able to either not have thought about it or wipe it from their heads and you start asking them, how should we, who should get what, they come up with much more nuanced views of who's deserving or who might need things. And that um, the queue doesn't leave much room for a principle like triage, which you see in an emergency room, right, in which you, you never are first come, first serve in an emergency room. The person there for the, you know, terrible head cold always gets seen after the person who came in with a, with a gunshot wound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, you know, we, we may be frustrated by that, but in the abstract anyway, we understand why that has to be. And so, you know, how can, how can we um, kind of fight the frame, first of all, in because I really care about politics. How can we fight the frame? But then also, how can we replace it with something that's more nuanced and better in the in the particular realms in which it has taken root? Well, all that sounds fascinating. I will look forward to um, uh, reading some work uh, in the not-too-distant future, I hope, uh, uh, from you uh, on these topics. Um, but for now, I, I, I want to thank you for uh, for appearing on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, remember, I've been talking to Elizabeth Cohen, and her new book is titled The Political Value of Time. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.